Again, I have the privilege to introduce, and I hope that you'll join me in welcoming Dr. Jordan Peterson. Okay, so here's another way of thinking about the structure of the world. On the outside, I, I named that the dragon of chaos, and that's sort of related to those, that snake that we saw here. That's the very base. And those are the things that you really don't understand at all. You kind of encounter the dragon of chaos when you're a little kid, and you're in your bed, and you're afraid of the dark, and you don't know what's in the closet, and there's a monster under your bed. It's like your, your nervous system, the fear systems in particular, are alerting you to the fact that out there in the domain that's beyond what you know, there are things that lurk that are terribly dangerous. Okay, so you could think about that as a predator detection circuit. And what's really happened to human beings is that we've modified the predator detection circuit as we've evolved to represent the unknown as such. And so I'll, I'll walk through that. So the snake is the thing that inhabits the unknown. And out in the unknown, there are things that are terrible and there are things that are good. Right? And that's why dragons, for example, exist and why they hoard gold. And a dragon, the best representation I've encountered of the dragon is that it's a snake-cat bird. And the reason it's a snake-cat bird is because tree-dwelling primates are primarily preyed upon by snakes and cats and birds. And so the dragon is a, a meta, it's an amalgamation, it's a monster of the predator, essentially. So, it's, so predator is a category. And dragon is a symbol of the, of the category of predator. And the dragons breathe fire because, well, obviously fire is also an extremely destructive force. And so um, and that's associated with, with, uh, with a snake as well. But the, the point I'm trying to make is that human beings have a, a, a space of safety, both psychologically and physically. The space of safety might be where you are when things are going properly for you. That's your home territory, and you can carry that with you, you know. And then culturally, it's the town or the community that's the safe space, but then outside of that, there's the unsafe space, and that's the space that you don't know. And like, human beings have to conceptualize what they don't know. That's one of the things about us that's so peculiar, you know, because if you have a computer and something happens that it doesn't understand, it just crashes. But if you are somewhere, you're always somewhere you don't understand and you don't get to crash. And so you actually need a representation of the domain of things that you don't understand. And that's a very strange representation, right? Because a representation means you know something. And so here's a situation where you're making a representation of the class of all things that you don't understand. And that's actually what the dragon-snake complex represents because it's a terrible predatory force that's eternal. But it also harbors something of extreme value. And that's perfect representation of the unknown for human beings because as we move into the un unknown frontier of any domain of knowledge, say, or geographically for that matter, we're going to encounter things that can, could potentially kill us in, in all sorts of terrible ways, but we're also going to discover a place of new information that could completely revitalize us. And so we're in this terribly ambivalent relationship with the unknown because it, it half attracts us and half repels us. And that's exactly right. And so part of the reason that, that images of the dragon, for example, exist all over the world, and that part of the way that humans are portrayed as is as heroic, what would, those who, who seek out heroic encounters with the dragon and get the gold, for example, is because we've learned a strange predator. Prey animals have learned that it's better to forthrightly confront the unknown than to wait 
frozen like a rabbit waiting for a wolf to devour us. And so, and so anyways, on the outside of this, this is a picture of the world. On the outside of this, there's the dragon of chaos. And that's the unknown as such before it's been parsed out into the conceptual world at all. And then that's subdivided. Out of that rise two categories. And these are the categories here. Out of that rise the category of mother and father, essentially. And I think that's because we're very social in our psychological structure. So we're, we're social primates and our ancestors for a very, very far back, as long as there's been familial caretaking, let's say, among mammals, which is as long as there's been mammals, there's been the category of mother and child. And as long as human males have been taking care of infants, there's been the category of father, mother and child. And for, for most societies, and even ours, almost all of our interactions with the world aren't interactions with the world. They're interactions with other people. And what that basically means is that our cognitive architecture is a social cognitive architecture and that it, it evolved to track the relationships between people. So predators, let's say, and people. And then as we became more and more intelligent, more capable of abstraction, we still had to use those underlying categories in order to represent the world because that's how evolution essentially works, is that once a structure is in place, then it has to be modified. It can't be transformed. Like your hand, if you go into, I, I went into the Smithsonian Museum at one point, and there's uh, like a skeleton zoo there, which is really worth seeing. And you go into the mammal section, and it's so interesting because all you see is human skeletons, basically, that are stretched in different ways. So even whales have the same basic bone structure as us. They're flippers or hands. Even bats, you know, they just have really long fingers, and that's what their wings are. And there's this unbelievable continuity of biological structure. And so it's a, it's a hallmark of evolution. So we evolved to detect predators and also to go after them, right? Because we're also hunters. And so that's the ambivalence of the unknown and the predator. And then we evolved to detect mothers, and we evolved to detect fathers, and we evolved to detect children. And so then we tend to lay a personality structure on the world that's based on those underlying architectural structures, and that's part of what makes up our stories. And the funny thing about that is that it actually works. It works really well. And I guess that's because the world is fundamentally social, and, and so... It, it, it works well for us to tell stories like that. So, you know, one of the things I sort of figured about the idea of God the Father recently is that, you know, there's this idea that you can make sacrifices to God and that that'll pay off. And I'm going to do a little reductionism here, and I'm, I'm not doing it in any final form, but just as an idea. You know, the idea of sacrifice is an unbelievably profound idea because what it means is that human beings figured out at one point, they had to act it out first, that if you gave up something that you really liked in the present, you could be paid off for that in the future. Now, animals can't do that, right? So there's an old story about how to catch a monkey is you take a, a, a jar with a narrow neck, heavy, fill it full of stones, you put some treats around the jar, and then some treats inside. So then the monkey comes along and picks up the treats and then puts his hand in the jar and grabs a treat, but then he can't get his hand out of the jar. Then you can just come up and pick up the monkey because he won't let go of the treat in order to save himself. He, won't, he can't make a sacrifice because he's too bound to the present. But human beings learn to make sacrifices, which, you know, and that's outlined very well in, in, in the Genesis stories. That was how they learned to bargain with God. And that was God the Father. And in some sense, God the Father was a, a projection of, of society at large because 
if I make sacrifices right now, let's say I do some work for you, and you remember that, then I can redeem that in the future. And so treating the social world as if it was a potentially judgmental father that was going to keep track of the sacrifices that you were making in the present was an unbelievably wise biological move, you know, independent of whatever other transcendent meanings it might have. So that's just an example of how this social cognitive level of conceptualization can actually serve us extremely well. Because you are, because you have a reputation and because you're dealing with the hierarchy as such, you know, and people are keeping track of whether you're honest or not and whether you're committed or not, then the things that you do now can be redeemed in the future in, in the form of promises. In fact, that's what money is, because money is nothing but promises between people to redeem work done now in, in the future, right? So, so anyways, um, we have these social cognitive categories, and out of the chaos arises the figure of the mother and the figure of the father and the figure essentially of the son. And you can also subdivide each of those figures into positive and negative. So there's a positive mother and a negative mother. Um, children experience that. You know, they love their mother, but sometimes they hate her because she imposes discipline and doesn't always provide exactly what's wanted at the moment. And then mother nature is, of course, exactly the same way. It's all beauty and environmental wonder, except for the cancer and the elephantiasis and the, you know, malarial mosquitoes and all of that. And then... On top of that, there's the, the paternal level, that's the patriarchy, for lack of a better word, and it's got a positive element, which is everything that keeps everything in order, like it is in this room, you know, the fact that we're all socialized and that we know how to behave, and then there's an element that's tyrannical, because that social order can get too tight and grip you too hard and force all the variability out of the system, and then it gets tyrannical, and so all of these different levels of representation of reality have this intense moral ambivalence about them that's very realistic when you lay it out in the world. And then on top of the father, let's say, or arising out of the father and the mother and out of chaos in the final analysis is the, is the individual. And the individual has a heroic element, and that's the element that goes forth forthrightly, forthrightly and honestly into the world. And then an adversarial element, which is the part of the individual that opposes that and is capable of unbelievably deep malevolence. And so that would also be associated with the tyrant, right? Because it's malevolent individuals who generate tyranny. And so then you could say that's a more complete human story, is that it's not only chaos and order, it's it's this more elaborated set of characters. There's chaos as such. That's the dragon that the hobbits go off to find. It's classic, classic mythological story. The oldest story we have of mankind, essentially, is our dragon-slaying stories, like the Mesopotamian creation myth. And there's even echoes in the Old Testament of God conceptualized as a serpent slayer or as a slayer, say, of Leviathan or Behemoth, which are these massive creatures, let's say, that have to be destroyed in order for the world to be set, set in a proper manner, echoes of very archaic ideas. And so what you might say in your life is that these are the forces that you have to deal with. You have to deal with the positive aspect of nature and the negative aspect of nature, because nature gives and kills. And then you have to deal with the tyranny of the state and the benevolence of the state. And then you have to deal with the malevolence of the individual and the heroism of the individual. And pretty much any narrative plot depends on the relationship between those characters. So, you know, uh, uh, the let's say the story that settled the American West, right, that, that moved people from Europe into the West, the story was 
heroic individual spreading the wonders of cultural order into the negative and the negative wastelands of nature. That's a powerful story because it's true. It isn't complete, but it's true. And then the environmentalist story, which you could think of as a counterpart to that, is exactly the opposite. It's the, it's the despoiling individual uh, moving out the raping and pillaging element of culture into the benevolent nature. And so those stories are completely opposed to one another. They're both true, but they're both partial stories. You need to know both of them in order to orient yourself properly in the world. So... All right, so I'm going to talk about order first. So the first thing that you have to understand about order is that order is a delimiting function. Okay, and that's because there isn't very much of you and there's a lot of everything else. And that's, that's part of the reflection of the individual, limited individual against the transcendent absolute. Like, in a battle between you and everything, you're going to lose because you're, there's just not enough of you. And so another way of thinking about that is that there's a lot more that you don't know than that you do know. Then, in fact, the amount that you don't know is comparatively infinite compared to the amount you know. And so partly what you do about that is you just stay in places that you know. You know, maybe you make little forays out into places you don't know, but you do it pretty damn carefully. You know, so for example, if you go to Southeast Asia or Africa, you take plenty of money, and that keeps you basically in the bubble that you're accustomed to, and, it, and it's no wonder. Like, you, you have to do that, because otherwise you become overwhelmed. And, and worse, it's not just psychologically overwhelmed, you, you can just die. It's, it's, you have to maintain a bubble around you that delimits the world. And so, part of the reason that people don't like being introduced to radically new ideas is because it, it damages the structure that they use to delimit the world. So we're always trying to deal with the, the transcendent element of existence, which is that part of it that is beyond us. And so, when you indicate to someone that one of their basic presumptions is in error, then you rattle the entire structure that they use to organize their perceptions, and you allow them to be flooded with the realization of their own ignorance and the vast space of, of, of unknowing that surrounds them. It's very terrifying to people. It can really damage them. So that happens often to soldiers who develop post-traumatic stress disorder. You know, they go out somewhere and they do something. They watch themselves do something they don't think they're capable of doing. And then they're just undone and they never really recover from that. So, you know, you can find the kind of unknown that can undo you inside you as well as outside you. And that's partly why people behave too, is because they don't want to scare themselves to death. So, anyways, so order, I already said, is that's where you are when what you're doing is working. So it's a psychological definition. But in order for that to work, you have to be surrounded by all sorts of protective structures because you have to keep the absolute chaos of the world from overwhelming you. So here's a way of looking at it. So... That's an old medieval city, and you can see how they simplified the environment, right? They simplified it by putting big walls between them and the unknown. So the barbarians stayed on the outside, and the marauders, and the order stayed on the inside. And you can see how worried they were about the marauders, because, you know, it took a lot of work to make those walls, and they didn't just make one, they made two. And so, and there's watchtowers all along it. So that meant the people inside there could live as if the world was simpler than it actually is. And so, and you think, well, we do the same thing with our borders, right? Borders. Borders do this. And that's why the fundamental political question is always about borders. And that's something that's really worth thinking, because the conservatives say, 
borders are necessary and maybe they should be thicker and more impenetrable. And the liberals say, well, wait a second, if you make them too thick and impenetrable, nothing new comes in. And the problem with that is, is that sometimes the conservatives are right and sometimes the liberals are right. And so they have to have an argument all the time about how permeable the borders should be. And it's the fundamental political question as far as I can tell. And it's a fundamental conceptual question because liberals have more permeable borders at every level of their cognitive hierarchy and conservatives have less permeable barriers, borders at every level of their conceptual hierarchy. And there's no saying who's right, right? It depends on the conditions of the environment at the time. Because if things are going to hell in a handbasket, then you better get the borders up. But if things are relatively peaceful, then you can relax and everybody can trade and then perhaps everybody benefits. But you don't know when which is which, you know? It's very difficult to determine that. So there's another example of of borders. These are more conceptual, you know? So this is part of a power transition. And we have rituals to allow power to trans to transform across elections, let's say, without everything descending into chaos. So that also helps protect us. And so those are, those are voluntary conceptual borders that, that order the world for us, rituals, let's say. And then there are the rules that, that, that help bind us together. And I really like the story of Moses, and this is kind of the way that I think about it. So, you know, the Israelites were wandering around in the desert, and they didn't know what they were doing, and, and it's a pretty sad story because they escaped from tyranny, which was obviously awful, but it's not like the desert was a great improvement, you know. Maybe it was even worse, and that's something really worth thinking about because Moses is obviously portrayed as a hero, but the first thing he does when he destroys tyranny is turn everything into a, an inhabitable desert. And so one of the things that often means, that psychologically it means many things, but one of the things it means is that very often to even escape from your own tyranny to break that thing that's, that's controlling you too much, the first price you pay is that you end up in a deserted landscape where the temptation of many different forms of worship beckon, right? Because that's what happens to the Israelites. They're lacking a unified aim psychologically and socially. And so they go into the desert. There's no, the, ty the tyrant was a unifying aim. Do what I say or else. At least everyone's unified there. You break that apart, you've got nothing but chaos. And then people go in all sorts of different directions. And so, you know, Moses replaced the horror of tyranny with the horror of chaos. And then he spent a lot of time in the desert acting as a judge because all these Israelites who were scrapping with each other nonstop because there was no hierarchical authority would come to Moses and ask him what they should do when they were fighting with each other. And he spent like a ridiculous amount of time judging them. And enough so I think it was his father-in-law told him that he was going to exhaust himself if he wasn't careful. And it was after that that he had the revelation of the commandments, the rules. And partly what that means is that you know, by judging people for so long, by puzzling over the structure of behavioral morality, he had a revelation that showed him what the fundamental articulated rules of a civilized society were. You know, and that came out at him as a revelation. And so that's at least in part what the story of Moses is about. And there's stone tablets because you write things on stone that you don't want to forget, right? Especially if you're well, if, if you don't have any other means of pres preservation, it's why we have stone monuments when people die, because stone lasts a long time. Stone is a symbol of permanence, and so these are the rules that people have to live by in order for life to even occur. And so that's also why they're associated in some sense with divine revelation. They're not arbitrary. And, and this is really worth knowing as well, because moral relativists think that there's all sorts of moral systems that work. And that's not true. It's not true. It's no more true than 
any old language structure will do. So there's many languages, but underneath those languages, there's a commonality that makes them all languages. And that commonality is as important as the variation. And underneath moral systems, there's a commonality. And that commonality, that, that's the absolute morality that you might say. And there are variations of that because of environmental differences from place to place. But there's only a limited number of games that people can play together that work. And so one of those games, roughly, is reciprocity. So there's this cool psychological experiment. So here's how the experiment goes. It's say, okay, I'm going to give you $100, but you have to share it with him. And you can make one offer to him, and if he accepts it, you both get the money. But if he rejects it, neither of you get any money. Okay, so I'm going to give you $100. How much are you going to give to him? 50 Okay, so... One of the cool things is that wherever you go with people, that's essentially their answer. And one of the things that's really interesting is that, let's say you offered him 10. He'd probably say no. And the classical economists don't know what to do about that because they think, well, that's stupid. It's like, you, if I said, can I give you $10, you'd say yes. But if I give him 100 and he gives you 10, you're going to say no because it's not fair, right? And the fairness is, it's, the reason that that works is because people don't just play one game with each other, they play a whole bunch of games with everybody. And so you want to make sure that each game is fair so that across games, everyone is treated properly. And that's a form of emergent morality. And there's, it's, very it's very constraining. So what it means is there isn't an infinite number of moralities. There's very few. And, and one of the bases for a lasting morality is reciprocity across multiple games. And here, here's another way of thinking about, this is really important because, you know, the moral relativists in many ways have got the upper hand and they are wrong. They're seriously wrong. Like the postmodernists have this idea, there's an infinite number of ways to interpret things, which actually happens to be correct. But there are not an infinite number of ways that you can interpret things that work socially and keep you alive. And that's, and that's the big that's the big flaw in their reasoning. And it, it's not just a philosophical flaw. They're wrong. It's wrong. They're right that things are so complex that you can interpret them any number of ways. But they're wrong in that there's an, inter, an infinite number of valid interpretations. There's a very constrained number of valid interpretations. And you know that because if you have a family, like there's only you have to treat them fairly, right? If you don't, they hate you. And then they'll take their revenge or you'll crush them. It's like you'll have hell in your house. And, and it's, it's based on, essentially based on the idea of reciprocity across time. So here's, here's an example that's pretty easy to understand. So let's say you have a kid and, and he or she is out playing a game. And uh, you observe how they're, they're playing. And maybe they're a bit too competitive and a bit too cranky. And you, know, you take them off the field afterwards and you say, it doesn't matter whether you win or lose. It matters how you play the game. And the kid's like eight, and they look at you. It's like, what, what, what in the world are you talking about? It's like the whole point of the game is to win, obviously. Right? And so, and you think, well, I don't really know what I mean, but I know it's, I know it's true. And so, which, which is very common that people know something is true, but they can't articulate why. Because we're, we have way more embodied wisdom than we have articulated wisdom. So we often know that we know something, but we can't say why. But here's why. It's like, so let's say... Life isn't a game. Life is a series of games. And the winner isn't the person who wins a game. The winner is the person who gets invited to play the largest number of games. And so when you're playing a game, people are observing you to see if you're the sort of person that it's fun to play with. 
and that would mean you're the sort of person that offers 50%. I asked a woman the other day about this, and she said $60, and you know, which I think is actually even a better answer, although 50 is a perfectly fine answer, and that's the, that's the one that people tend to converge at, right? Because it's basically fair to you and to him. But she said 60, and that's kind of interesting because everyone heard, and then you could imagine, well, now I might say, well, he said 50 and he said 60. Now you guys get to pick which of these people you're going to play that game with. And you're all going to pick him. And so he's only going to get 40 bucks per trade, but he's going to get like a thousand trades. And so, you know, you're just, you get your 50 bucks and that's better than nothing. But, you know, so it might even be that being a little bit more generous than 50-50 is a really good long-term strategy, especially if you develop a, uh, a reputation for that. But you can see how it's, it's so... It's so fundamental that, so Jack Panksepp, who's a brilliant neuroscientist, even observed this with rats. So little rats, juveniles, they like to rough and tumble play, eh? and so they'll work to enter a play arena where they know they get to wrestle with another rat. And so if you pair two juvenile rats together, and one's about 10% bigger than the other, then the big rat can stomp the little rat whenever he wants, 10%'s enough. So, you put the rats in the, you let the rats work and they go out in the arena where they can play and the two rats play like dogs, you know, they, they make the little play gestures and then they start wrestling with each other and the big rat pins the little rat. And so now the big rat is this, uh, the little rat is the subordinate rat, okay, they've established the dominance. Now let's say you pair them repeatedly together now. So the next time the little rat has to ask the big rat to play, that's the first rule. But then if you pair them repeatedly across time, unless the big rat lets the little rat win at least 30% of the time, the little rat won't ask him to play anymore. And so that was something Panksepp demonstrated, I think about 15 years ago, and it was unbelievably profound realization because what it showed was that the morality of reciprocity is so deep that it even manifests itself in rats if you allow them to play across repeated games. And so there's a very deep sense of reciprocity as the fundamental basis, reciprocity and honesty, because honesty goes along with that, because if you do something for me, then I have to remember it, right? Now I'm in your debt, and at some point I have to pay it back. And you're going to watch me, like, you'll do a favor, and you know, you won't, you're not keeping a ledger exactly, but there's a little expectation in the back of your head that now that you've done something for me, if the time comes that you need something similar, then it would be appropriate of me to repay you. And so, and if, I, if you do three or four things for me and you get nothing in return, then you're going to turn your attention to someone else because I'm like a kid who can't play. And so, it's out of these simple realities that are really undeniable that complex forms of morality emerge. And that is exactly the proper rejoinder to the notion of moral relativism because it... Uh, <laughs> Well, because you can see just out of that notion of reciprocity across multiple play states that you can get both the notion of fair play and honesty. And those are mo major moral, uh, they're, they're major foundational elements of morality as such. And so that, it's very important to know that. And so, you know, what happens with Moses and with most lawgivers is that the fundamental elements of the uh, rules for social conduct that allow individuals to thrive and to cooperate and to compete and to maintain their society across long periods of time become codified. They're acted out to begin with. And you can see that, for example, if you look at, at, at primitive, like animal societies. So there's this guy named Franz de Waal who's been studying chimpanzees. And uh, 
you know, you might think that this chimp up at the left, he learned something quite cool. So he learned if he picked up a stick and a garbage can lid, that he could bang the hell out of the garbage can lid. That would scare all the other males away. So, you know, when we have this idea sort of of cavemen and of chimpanzees is like the biggest, toughest, most tyrannical caveman or chimpanzee is the person who dominates the hierarchy, but that isn't true. What happens when Franz de Waal looked at the stability of chimpanzee leadership across time, he found that it was the male chimps, they were often physically powerful, but if they weren't capable of engaging in reciprocity, so mutual grooming, for example, and if they didn't have any friends, and if they didn't treat the females properly, and sometimes also the infants, that they tended to get overthrown by their subordinates. And that was brutal. It was a coup, you know, and they'd end up dead because even if they were the toughest chimp, they weren't as tough as two chimps that were three quarters as tough. And they would just wait around until he was having a bad day. And then it was like all hell broke loose because chimpanzees are unbelievably violent when they get going. And so even among chimps, Power in and of itself is an insufficient determinant of stable uh, hierarchies. And so that's of absolutely crucial importance because it's another indication that, that, that the stability of a society depends on the moral action of its individuals, even if those individuals aren't even human. You know, when you see the same thing to some degree with like wolf packs, um, as, like if, if two wolves are engaged in a dominance dispute, you know, they first of all, they puff up to look big. Their hair stands on end, and they turn sideways so they look larger like a cat does when it's, when it's you know, puffs off its table, it turns sideways so it looks big. And then the wolves try to scare each other. And the first wolf that backs down, he rolls over, shows his neck, which means, okay, well, I'm useless, you can kill me. And the other wolf will go and, you know, like take, take a hold of him, but won't kill him. And so it's like, yeah, I could kill you, but, you know, I might need you to hunt down a moose tomorrow, so it would probably be better if I didn't. It's something like that. And so out of that, those aren't rules, because wolves don't have rules. They have behavioral patterns, and they have instincts. But the instinct is, well, we have to figure out who's who so that there's a leader and, and so that everybody knows where they sit in the social circumstance. But we also can't assume that just because you're weaker that you get to be destroyed. And so that's, and so to see that even in emerging in animals is another indication of exactly how profound that, that idea is. So that's order, and you can see that sort of reflected in these images, at least to some degree, because the pyramidal structure is like a hierarchical structure, right? And there's an idea there that, that God the Father is a manifestation of the properly structured hierarchy of power. It's like the spirit of the hierarchy. That might be, it's no different than to think of God as the God of your ancestors. It's the same sort of ideas that whatever God the Father is, and I'm not trying, I am reducing this, but I'm not trying to take the transcendent element out. I'm just trying to tell a, a, a more basic story in some sense that this is one element of what that image represents, is that there's a spirit that inhabits the hierarchy, which is the benevolent and judgmental Father. And it's both at the same time, mercy and justice. It can't just be mercy because then you get away with everything and you turn out completely useless. And it can't be judgmental only because then every time you make a mistake, you're called on it and punished. And that's just too much because you're going to make mistakes. So there has to be this balance between mercy and justice that constitutes, that's the right and left hand of God fundamentally. I think the right hand is justice and the left hand is mercy if I've got it correct. And so... That's, and that's the proper balance of power in a hierarchy. And so it's the spirit of the properly functioning hierarchy. And 
your job as an individual is to manifest that spirit in your own life, right? To be a, a proper representative of the hierarchy, let's say, of competence or the hierarchy of mercy and justice, something like that. And then with the dollar bill there, you get something that's a little bit more of an elaboration of that that's sort of reflected with the dove on the top of the pyramid in the bottom right. So there's an eye that's above the pyramid, and that's the thing that makes you more than just a representative of the state. The eye is something separate that's at the top, and that's your capacity to pay attention. And it's separate from the hierarchy because the hierarchy isn't perfect, and so you have to pay attention and adjust it when it's necessary. And so, and you do that in some sense, you learn to do that by mastering the hierarchy, which is why you have to be disciplined and trained. And then if you get disciplined and trained enough, you can sort of pop away from the hierarchy and look at it, and then you can carefully adjust it where it isn't working too well, like a mechanic fixing a car. And so that's really what you're attaining to. And um, you could think about that in part as manifested in Christian ideation as the dove, or sometimes it's manifested as the idea of Christ. It's certainly manifested as the idea of the individual. And so there's a way of thinking about how those archetypes emerge. There's chaos in the left-hand corner, and then that turns into a manifestation of the Father. And uh, the Father, you see, that's God over, this, over the walled city, the middle image. And part of God is, or part of the Father, let's say, is security and, and safety, and that's the good king on the right, and then part of it is the proclivity for that, when it isn't functioning properly, to turn into tyranny. And so, you know, you have to keep an eye on the Father, so to speak, to make sure that it stays benevolent and doesn't become tyrannical, and that's, that's a constant battle, because order degenerates into tyranny, especially when people have their eyes closed, right? And there's a great old Egyptian story about Osiris and and Seth, who's basically the precursor of Satan, um, sim symbolically speaking. And Seth is Osiris. Osiris is the ruler of Egypt, and Seth is his evil brother. And, and Osiris knows that Seth is a bad guy, but he decides not to pay enough attention. He's willfully blind, and that's what people do when they don't speak up, when they know things are going wrong, is they turn a blind eye to the malevolent element of society, and that's how tyrannies get going. And so... It's, and that story is very old, and it's exactly right, because tyrants push on you a little bit, because they don't have internal boundaries. They push on you a little bit, and if you step back, then you get a little weaker, and they get a little stronger. And then the next time they push, they push a little harder. Now you're a little weaker, and they're a little stronger. So if you backed off once, you're going to take two steps the next time, and then soon you're this little squeaking mouse, and this whole giant is chasing you around trying to stomp on you, and you think, well, how did we get here? And it's like, well... You knew it was coming, you saw it in the increments, and you decided, well, you know, I don't need to do anything about it right now. It's like, well, you pay the price for retreating in that, in that manner. See, that's, their, that's the king that devours his own son, right? That's that image. So that's what he's about to do. And the king that devours his own son is the tyrant who's so intense that he won't allow his progeny to develop into independent beings, which is more or less the definition of a tyrant. Right, so it's a very unpleasant idea, and that's what's manifest in this sort of thing, you know. Um, Captain Hook there, he's interesting. Most of you have seen Peter Pan, and Peter Pan doesn't want to grow up, right? 
He's got this relationship with this little fairy, who of course doesn't exist because she's a little fairy, and he could have an actual woman, that's Wendy, she's only a girl, but you know, you know where the thing is, everything is going in the story. And she wants to grow up and, and be an adult, but Peter Pan, he wants to stay king of the lost boys. And like, really, that's, the, that's who you want to be king of? That's just not such a great ambition, you know? And uh, it's like being the tallest midget or something like that. Um, <laughs> That's probably politically incorrect. <laughs> but but the part of the problem with Peter Pan is that like his basic image for adulthood is Captain Hook. And Hook is like a tyrant. And right, and what's Hook chased by? Crocodile, right? And what's in what's in the crocodile's stomach? Time, right? So Captain Hook is the person who's been turned into a tyrant because he's terrified of time and mortality. And and time has already got a piece of him. Right? So he's so existentially terrified that he's transformed himself into a tyrant. And Peter Pan looks at that and he thinks, well, why would I want to grow up and be a one-armed, hooked tyrant chased by a, like a crocodile that has a taste for me? I'd rather stay immature and king of the lost boys. But the problem is, is that he doesn't really have an existence then, right? And Wendy grows up and, of course, has a life. And Peter Pan just stays an eternal adolescent. And that's something... Like, if, if you can't see relationship between that story and what's happening in our culture, then you're just not thinking at all. And so, you know, the tyrannical ideas, well, this guy too, this is after the fall of the wall, you know, and here's a, but this is in Poland, someone kissing a statue of Stalin. It's like, really? That's maybe not the world's best idea. And there's a terrible painting over here, the same sort of idea. That's the hellish element of the, of the tyrant. You know, and here you almost see Stalin in a satanic guise, you know, he's, he's surrounded by something that looks very much like fire, and that's exactly right. And, you know, hero of the, of the, of the motherland, yeah, well, certainly, I mean, who knows how many people he killed. You can't even count the millions. So, you know, and then, you know, these are images from Auschwitz, and so tyranny, tyranny can get out of hand unbelievably badly when people abandon their individual moral duty. And there's a, there's a poster from the Allies in World War II, you know, where, where the Nazis are associated with snakes, essentially, and kind of with frogs and reptiles, and that's a good example of the use of the um, predator detection system to label what's unknown and what's the enemy. You know, it's, it's a reversion to a very fundamental mode of thinking, and that's, that's often... Well, useful, and then you see Christ, or Hitler here as a kind of a an antichrist, right? So that's for all intents and purposes the Holy Spirit, but it's a it's a carnivorous eagle, and you know he's a well, he's an antichrist figure essentially, and well, so that's that's culture, and then as opposed to that, there's nature, and nature is feminine, and the reason for that I think is well, the primary. The primary hierarchies among human beings tend to be masculine, so that's one reason. And so, the, what's outside the hierarchy in some sense is feminine, but there's a lot more reasons than that. So, feminine is nature. And the reason for that among human beings, I think, is that women are actually nature. From a Darwinian perspective, nature is what selects, right? That's an evolutionary truism. And one of the things that distinguishes human females from the females of other animal species, many animal species, is that females are choosy maters. And so, on dating sites, women rate 85% of men as below average. 
And so, and maybe that's true in some perverse way, but, but it's also the case that you have twice as many female ancestors as male ancestors. And you might think, well, that's not mathematically possible, but it is. So imagine that every man that has a child has two. And every woman that has a child has one. And what that means is half the men have zero children. And that's essentially how it's worked across time. And so men are culled much more dramatically from the reproductive process than females are. And females say no. And, you know, they have their reasons for saying no because, well, they have to put up with a lot to be pregnant and then have an infant and they need someone reliable. And, like, there's a lot at stake. And there's some good evidence that part of the reason that human beings are so intelligent is because we've been involved in an evolutionary arms race between men and women for like seven million years. Once women became choosy, it set off an arms race of intelligence. And so that's a very interesting proposition. But, but what it means is that it isn't that women are symbolically nature. For men, they are nature. And so when a woman says something like, well, I don't really want to go out with you, I don't want to date you, but you're okay as a friend, what that means is something like, well, you're basically tolerable, but I don't think your genetic material should propagate itself into the future, <laughs> right? Well, that is what it means. Make no mistake about it. And so there's no more fundamentally damning a statement than that, and that accounts for some of the antipathy between men and women, the ongoing antipathy between men and women. And women also make men self-conscious in a very dramatic way, partly by refusing them, because there's nothing that makes a man more self-conscious than to be refused. And if you remember correctly, or, or potentially correctly, that's what happens with Eve in, in the story of Adam and Eve, right? Because Eve makes Adam self-conscious. She's the person who gives him the fruit. She's the person that wakes him up and so that he, his eyes open and he sees he's naked and what's useless and horrible about himself. That's the arise of self-consciousness. And I think that's actually right, that w women did make men self-conscious. And women are more self-conscious than men on average. That's associated with negative emotion. And so... Um, so, anyways, that's part of the reason why women are nature, and or the feminine is nature, and so this is an echo of the masculine division, so you see the woman there whose promise on the one hand, that's Diana in the bottom left-hand corner with multiple breasts, she's sort of the, the mother of humanity, and then on the right you see this figure of Kali, who's an Indian goddess, um, who can be transformed into a positive goddess, by the way, if you make the right sacrifices, which is a very interesting idea, but I'll tell you a bit about Kelly, because you need to be able to see what that statue represents before you can understand it. And so, first of all, she has eight legs like a spider, okay? And so human beings are innately afraid of spiders and snakes. That was just established because they just showed really young infants, I think three months old, pictures of spiders and snakes before they'd ever seen a spider or a snake. And their pupils dilated much more to pictures of spiders and snakes than to like handguns or rhinoceroses or, you know, other things that were hypothetically dangerous. And so that I, the, the idea of... of, of the outside or the dangerous is very well symbolized by insect figures and, and reptiles. And that's why monsters in horror movies are often some combination of insect and reptile, you know, and that, that creeps people out. And, well, no wonder, because we were chased around by those sorts of things for a long time. So anyways, she's got eight legs like a spider. And she sits inside a web of fire. So that's, that's what that is, the, the curlicues there. But inside the fire is a ring of skulls. 
And so that's, that's the fire of death, essentially. And her hair is on fire, too, and she has a headdress of skulls, so that's rather nasty. And then you see her belly is relatively hollowed out. And, and what's happened is she's just given birth to that character that she's standing on, and she's eating him. You see the snake-like things that are sort of coiled up around her there? That's his intestines, and she's eating him. So that's the terrible element of Mother Nature, right? That's death and destruction. And, you know, the person who made that carving or who made that representation was trying to represent the terrible element of nature and then to try to figure out, well, what do you do? Not, not specific terrors of nature, right? But the idea of the terror of nature as such. Because human beings are capable of that level of abstraction. And then the, the Indians discovered, like we did, that... Um, you could offer sacrifices and that would keep the terrible force of nature at bay. That's exactly right. Now that was dramatized and ritualized and all that, but lots of times you have to act something out before you understand it. So the idea was if you made the correct offering to the terrible forces of nature, then she would transform herself into the benevolent element of nature. And of course, that's what we're always hoping, right? We wouldn't be working, we wouldn't be striving, we wouldn't be trying unless we believed that there were things that you could offer up as a sacrifice to nature and fate that would protect you in the future. As I said, it's one of the great discoveries of humankind. And your, her whole life is that, is what sacrifices do I have to make in order to keep absolute hell at bay? And so... There's no difference between that and thinking. It's the same thing. Let's see. There's other forms of framing as well. So, oh, let me see. Do, do I want to go through this? Yeah, I think I do. So, let me think for a second. I'm going to do this backwards. All right, so here's another way of looking at this. And this is the, the, uh, the, the role that stories play in our lives. So this, this place of order is actually a place, uh, a narrative place, as I said at the beginning, because people act out a drama in their life, right? And so the drama is a story. Or, well, first of all, it's something acted out that if you described would be a story. But it can be described and then it's a story. And so a story is a way that you transfer a set of perceptions and behavioral, um, uh, what? You transfer perceptions and behavioral wisdom from you to another person. That's why people are so interested in stories. It's like, well, I can go out there for myself and figure out what to do, but maybe I'll die, or I can listen to you, and you almost died, but you didn't, so you can tell me what you did, and then I get what you had, and I don't have to just about die. And that's, that's why we're focused on stories, right? That's why we're focused on heroic stories in particular, because a heroic story is a story about a person who's successful across a very large number of transformations. And so the ultimate heroic stories are actually ultimate religious stories, and so the story of Christ, for example, is the triumph even over, well, it's the triumph over the horror of life, like betrayal and terror and, and, and sorrow and, 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 and uh, torture and, and lowliness and all of that, and then the triumphant transcendence above that. So it, that, that's what makes that an archetypal story. But a simpler story is just, well, I was somewhere, point A, and I was going somewhere to point B. And it's like, that, that's what you ask when you say to someone, what are you doing today? And they say, well, here's the current state of my life. 
and it's got a bunch of problems, and I'm going to address those problems, and then by tonight, my life is going to be slightly better. And so you're in one of those frames all the time, right? You're in a state of insufficiency of some sort. That's your current state. That's part of the fall of man, you might say, to be in that state of permanent insufficiency. And then you have a vision of the future that's better, and then you have some plans about how you're going to turn one into the other, and then you determine whether or not your plans and your behaviors are correct based on whether they do turn one into the other. Right? And if they don't, then you experience failure, and that hurts, and you have to rebuild your plan, and all that's very annoying. And so these underlying, we have underlying instincts that set up the frame, so you get hungry, or you get thirsty, or you get lonely, or so on, and it's very old parts of your brain are determining that, and you can just run through those instincts on a daily basis, or because you're also a very sophisticated creature, you can come up with a plan that addresses many of those fundamental necessities at the same time, and that's kind of what you do when you pursue a career or a relationship, right? You think, well, if I go get trained, sacrifice my free time to be educated, then I I can take a role in society that will then I won't be hungry and I won't be thirsty and I won't be bored and I'll, I'll be offering something of utility to the community and maybe I'll be able to find a mate and so you can integrate all those fundamental instinctual demands into a higher order pattern of behavior that's essentially a moral pattern of behavior and then that can take care of all those problems at the same time and that's really what the purpose of the higher parts of your brain are is to solve a multitude of problems um, simultaneously in a in, over a very long period of time. But anyways, that's basically the little story. And then, you know, when you're in one of those stories, let's see. Yeah, we'll go to there. When you're in one of those stories, the world lays itself out in a particular way to you. So when you're moving forward to the point that you want to go to, you're motivated, and that's by very deep underlying systems. And then this is sort of the way emotions work. When you're moving from point A to point B, you divide the world up into things that are helping you get there, tools, roughly speaking, and things that are getting in your way, obstacles, and then irrelevant things. And almost everything is irrelevant because most things don't help you or get in your way. And actually, you're really happy when most things are irrelevant because there are a lot of things. And if they become relevant, then you're in real trouble. So you want to simplify the world so there's only a few things that you have to contend with. Then you kind of know your plan is of the right size. And if it's a good plan, then most things are facilitators or tools. And that's really what makes you happy. So that's how your emotional systems work, is that you set an aim. And then if the landscape lays itself out so that you're moving towards your aim, then your brain systems that modulate positive emotion produce dopamine, which is the primary chemical for positive emotion, telling you that you're on your way somewhere good, and that your plan is intact. And then that also makes that plan, the neural representation of that plan, grow, because dopamine also helps with cellular growth. So a successful plan tends to occupy more territory, let's say. And so, and so that's a good thing to know, because one of the things it means is that if you don't have an aim, you can't have any positive emotion, right? Right? That's a really important thing to understand because people often think they get positive emotion by accomplishing something. But that's not really true because, you know, like you graduate from university and you're sort of at the pinnacle of your academic career at that point and then the next day you're an unemployed person hoping to be a barista at Starbucks, right? And so the, 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 the culmination of the story is also the collapse into a new form of chaos. And so there isn't positive emotion that's 
con continually associated with that kind of accomplishment. There's positive emotion associated with picking an aim that's worthwhile. And the more worthwhile the aim, the better, which is part of the reason that moral virtue is so necessary for a good life. You want to aim high, right? You want to aim high and then decompose that into subplans that you can actually attain. And then you, you're, you're, you're flooded, let's say, with a sense that what you're doing is worthwhile, let's say, despite the suffering of life. And that, that's part of the reason that moral virtue is necessary. It's not just a, you should. It's not, it's not limitations that's placed on your being, you know, arbitrarily so that you don't disturb other people. It is that, but that's the weak part of it. The strong part of it is that life is very, very difficult and it's full of suffering. And one of the things you have to set against that is your moral aim. And the proper moral aim is to aim as high as you can imagine, to aim at the highest good that you can imagine. And then partly what a religious story does is try to lay out what that good could be. And so in Christianity, for example, the example in the New Testament is of a person who voluntarily takes the burden of suffering on himself and also the burden of evil, because that's what it means for Christ to have taken the sins of the world onto himself. And so he's willing to completely embody what it means to be a human being, which is to be subject to tragedy and to be the locus of malevolence. And the idea there is that the highest good that you can, uh, that you can aspire to is to, is to be, be strong enough to do that, to be strong enough to do that voluntarily and not shrink in terror from it and not let it turn you in a malevolent direction and to live as a beacon to other people and to make the world a better place and all of that. And then that can fill your life with enough nobility and purpose. So the fact that life is suffering and there is malevolence in the world, you can regard as a tolerable circumstance given the, the grandeur of the possibilities that await for you. And so it's absolutely crucial to life. And, and it, it's worse than that because it's not only that if you don't have an aim, you you don't have any positive emotion. It's also that if you don't have an aim that justifies your existence, that you degenerate because, because you don't have enough positive emotion, you're still gonna have plenty of suffering and you're still gonna run into plenty of malevolence in you and other people. And so none of the negative emotion is going to go away if you don't have a moral aim. All of the negative emotion is going to stay and then you'll be this person who's only tortured by existence. And then if you're tortured by existence because you withdraw, then you're going to become resentful and deceitful and arrogant, and then you're going to become malevolent, and then you're going to become suicidal or homicidal or genocidal, because that's where that ends up if you take it to its final conclusion. You know, your life is suffering, pointless suffering, to the point where you think that being itself should be eradicated. And so that's a bad road. So it's not only that if you don't have a name, that you don't have a good road, it's that if you don't have a name, the bad road opens itself up for you. And, and it's no trivial matter. And it's actually a matter that in some sense the fate of the world depends upon because we just can't have that many people anymore taking that terrible road because individual human beings are too powerful. We're too powerful. And so that's just got to not continue because... You know, if the wrong person gets a hold of the wrong tools, we're in all sorts of trouble. And we, we just barely squeaked by in the 1960s and the 1980s. And it's, it's not going to get better. It's going to get worse with regards to that. So, so, so anyways, you need a name. And, you know, things that help you along give you positive emotion. Things that get in your way get, give you negative emotion. And everything else is irrelevant. And 
The question is, there's another category too, and, and this is, I'm going to talk a little bit about the descent into the underworld again, just to let you know how that happens. And so, when you're moving from one point to another, something might get in your way, and you can just walk around it. And, you know, that's annoying and all that. That's why you honk at someone when you're in your car. You know it's rude, but you do it anyways, because you automatically tag the person as an obstacle, and then you beep at them. You know, even you're going to do the same stupid thing to someone else a block later. But it's, it's real, it's a simplifying response. You know, but maybe now and then, well, let's say uh, you beep at someone and, and they get out of their car with a crowbar. Okay, so that's, that's a whole new kettle of fish, let's say, right? And that's actually a symbolic representation. And what that means is you aren't where you thought you were and you're not beeping at who you thought you were beeping at. And then you also don't, so, and then what happens then is all sorts of things that were irrelevant become relevant. Right, because the person in the car was irrelevant, basically. You were just beeping at the car. You know there's a person in there, but you know you think they're going to tolerate being beeped at. And so they're civilized or maybe cowardly or however you want to put it. But you honk and like this like biker comes out with a crowbar and you think, huh, prediction error. <laughs> right, I'm not getting what I want. And then all sorts of things that you want to be irrelevant about human beings become relevant. It's like, you know, we all have a capacity for mayhem and malevolence, but mostly we keep that under control for a variety of reasons. But the whole old guy with the crowbar, he's not really doing that. And so you just don't know what's going to happen. It's like, what are you facing here? Like a murderous combat? Like, are you facing your death? And does that mean that you've misjudged humanity very badly? And maybe that you're a little bit more irritable than was good for you? And so that's the... That's the emergence of the complexity that your plan had been hiding. And that happens every time a big mistake happens. So another example is, if you're in a relationship, let's say, it's a long-term relationship and it's predicated on fidelity and you find out that your partner's been having, let's say, three affairs for 10 years. It's like, okay, so you're in this little bubble and, and everything was stable around you and then all of a sudden, bang, up comes the snake in the Garden of Eden, let's say, and you're now conscious and self-conscious, and that is not fun. You're out of your little garden, and you're into the horrors of history, because what happens is that everything irrelevant becomes relevant. You know, so you think you had a past with this person, and you think the past is over, because the past is gone, but then you find out that that person isn't who you think they are, and that means everything you think about your past with that person is wrong. And so then you have to rethink your whole past with that person. And so that's not entertaining. And then, of course, the present, well, it's just done. And the future, well, whatever you'd been planning and dreaming of, that's now turned into complete chaos. And then you don't even know who you are anymore because, like, you're, you're either a sap or you're blind or you're the victim of something malevolent. It's like none of those are good choices. And so, I mean, if you're a sap, maybe that means you don't know who you are and you don't know who people are. And so maybe you can't trust any of your damn relationships. And it's like... This boat that you were in has just suffered some fatal damage and you're starting to sink, right? And that's the unexpected, that's novelty, and that's the thing we tag with the predator detection system, right? That's the emergence of the multi-headed snake, let's say. So, down you go into chaos and that's a descent into, well, it's a descent into the underworld or it's a descent into hell, it can be that as well. And so, I won't show you the, yeah, that's that, that's the... That's the, that's the paradisal dis dissolution, is the unknown manifests itself, and you wake up, and, and then you're no longer in the paradise. You're out in history where things are awful, and you have to work to put them back together, right?
That's what that represents as well. You know, what happens with Jonah is that God tells him to do something. And he doesn't. He runs away. It's like, that's a bad idea. When you know you're supposed to do something, especially if God tells you to do it, yeah, you should probably do it. Because if you don't, you're going to end up tossed off a boat and eaten by a giant like serpent. And that's not going to be very entertaining. Like, Jonah's lucky. He has a rebirth. But, you know, that's just good graces. He could have stayed in that whale. Lots of people do. That's an image of hell. So that's a summary of this sort of of this sort of symbolic representation, and I'll show you the. Those are different images of the same thing. That descent into chaos. You see, there, there's a flying snake, and there's a woman in there, and a man, and a like a. Redemptive figure. That's a picture of the structure of reality. Let's see. I'm going to go through these. I want to end this with this. So the question is, how do you orient yourself in this world? Well, this is a good representation. So that's Hercules. And see, he's got a club there, and the club is covered with eyes. And so, and he's got his eyes wide open, and he's going out into the darkness. And, like, he's protected. He's got this, like, protective boat, essentially, that keeps him afloat. You need some structure between you and the unknown. But he's going out into the unknown, forthrightly, with his eyes open, paying attention. That's not the same as thinking. Thinking is different. Paying attention is looking out for what you don't know, and watching it and learning about it. To always be aware of that border between what you know and what you don't know, and to try to occupy that, so you're constantly increasing your competence and fixing the structure within which you live. And so that's the heroic journey. And the hero is the, is the son of the great father, we might say. And the hero is also the son of the great mother. And the hero in, involves himself in this journey. It's like he, he knows what he knows, but he knows he, what he knows is insufficient. And so then he goes and looks for what he doesn't know, and that destabilizes him, and that's kind of a voluntary death. You know, maybe it's only a little death, though, you know. You learn something that you need to know that jars you, but it's not enough to destabilize you. You can learn these things very easily. Like, if you just ask, sit on a bed and ask yourself, well, is there th some things I could do that I'm not doing that would straighten up my life? You'll, 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 you'll get a revelation of what those things are right away. And then you won't want to do them because you're avoiding them because your snake detection systems are telling you that they're snakes. But you can either let them breed or you can go out there and hack off their heads and, you know, and, and make things stable and safe. And that's a constant, that's the constant existential question. So the hero is willing to con confront chaos and then to take what he learns from encountering that chaos and reintegrating. And so that's the paradise lost, paradise regained model, and that's the redemptive model. And so what that means is that the individual isn't what he knows, so he's not a tyrant, he's not an authoritarian tyrant, and the individual isn't a chaotic nihilist either, but the individual is the thing that moves from that, posi from that position, from a position of stability to a position of instability, and then has a rebirth constantly, and that's the story of continual human development at small scales and at large scales. And, you know, if you're careful, you continue to learn small, painful things at a reasonable rate, maybe a rate that even just challenges and interests you, so that you aren't fated to learn really horrible things in big chunks that destroy you so badly that you can't reconstitute yourself. 
And so part of the heroic path of individuality, say, which is the path of the Logos, is to confront the truth and to speak the truth and to aim at the highest good and to fix problems as they arise so that you can maintain yourself and expand yourself across time so that you can bolster your family, so that you can strengthen your society, all of those at the same time, and keep the balance between chaos and order and maintain the balance between chaos and order. And that's I suppose in some sense you might think of that as roughly equivalent to the kingdom of God on earth that is spread out before man's eyes but which they will not see. It's something like that. It's, it's an idea that's very similar to that. And that's the dragon fight. You know, the classic dragon fight is that there's a, a stable place but it's damaged. That's, that's the great father and there's something that threatens it and the hero comes out to confront that voluntarily and frees something of value because dragons hoard virgins as well as gold. And that's because women actually like the heroes who go out and confront the unknown. You know, they're very wise that way. And then the hero puts the, the society back together as a, as a moral obligation not only to go and have an adventure but to use the, the consequences of that adventure to revitalize the state. So that's another representation of the same thing. See, and that's a symbol of eternity, you know, and eternity breeds nothing but snakes, and the hero is the person who's, well, constantly confronting that. That's Hercules, by the way. And these are all representations of St. George. And then I'll stop with this. This is such a cool picture. It's like one of the most profound pictures I've ever seen. So it's so brilliant. It like summarizes Christianity in one picture, which is like, that's not very easy. You know, it's very hard. So here you see Eve, you know, and she's handing out these apples. And you see there's a skull there. And so Eve was the person, because she woke humanity up, let's say, by making them self-conscious, by interacting with the snake, she brought the knowledge of death into the world, right? And then this is the church on this side, and she's handing out the hosts. Um, and the hosts, you see, are associated with Christ. He's crucified up in that tree. And the idea is that if you incorporate the spirit of the voluntary acceptance of the dregs of life and suffering and all of that, and, and, the, and the reality of malevolence, which is all part of the crucifixion story, that that is the antidote to the terror of death that emerged at the beginning of time. And that's the heroic pathway, is to, is to be brave enough to encounter the worst of the snakes. And you know, the snake in the Garden of Eden is the snake, and, and fair enough, but the snake is also Satan, and that's very weird. That's a very weird idea. But the reason for that is that, well, there's a snake, eh, and that's not so good, and then there's a nest of snakes, and that's even worse, and so maybe then you can clear out the nest of snakes, but then you get rid of the snakes, and then, well, you have an interaction with your neighbor, and he betrays you, and so it turns out the damn neighbor has a snake inside him. And then that snake can be really terrible because there's nothing that can be more snake-like than a human being, right? That's because we have the knowledge of good and evil and we can torture each other. And so that's bad enough, but then you also discover that you have a snake inside you and that that's an eternal reality. And so that's why there's a parallel drawn between the thing that disrupts the paradise in, 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 par in the thing that di disrupts paradise as this reptilian predator and, uh, and the master of all evil that inhabits all of our hearts. We were smart enough across time to realize that the fundamental thing that, that 
that opposed us, let's say, or threatened us, wasn't like the, the crawling reptile, but it was the symbolic spiritual reptile that inhabited everyone. And so that's a brilliant realization. It's an absolutely, unbelievably brilliant realization. And God only knows how long it took for us to figure that out. And so that's the thing that you're supposed to fight, right? Is your own weakness in the face of tragedy, your inability to be a hero, and the probability, the high probability of your deep malevolence. And that's all part of the willingness to fight the dragon and to gain the gold and to get the girl and to restore the world. And, and that's all part of participating in the process of logos and that's all part of being made in the identity of God.